Hey, thanks for joining us at Connection Point Church. You know, we would love for you to stay connected and a simple way for you to do that is to subscribe so that each week you can get notified when new content goes live. We'd also love to keep in touch with you throughout the week and the best way to do this is through our Connection Point Facebook page. Now with all that being said, let's go to this week's message with our lead pastor, Zach Maddox. How many of you have ever read the Bible and hit certain points where you're like, I have no idea what to do with that right now? I know it's true, but I'm just not sure what I'm supposed to do with that. Anybody ever been there? I for sure have. Peter, one of the early followers of Jesus who wrote a couple of books of the Bible in the New Testament, he says, there are parts that are hard to understand. That's an understatement. (laughs) I would say we hit one of those passages this morning as we talk about submitting to one another in various relationships where that principle can be lived out. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we read from Ephesians chapter 4, where it says, Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. So when Paul talks about Gentiles in these verses, I I didn't mention this here, he's not referring to Gentile believers. He's referring to Gentile unbelievers. So he's kind of using a phrase that, That kind of is a header for that. And so what he's saying is is that unbelievers are hopelessly confused regarding the things of God because the Holy Spirit is not in them teaching them how to live. That's what he's referring to. And I mention this here because some people, when they read the verses like we're going to get into today, they could consider Christianity to be a religion that promotes male chauvinism and endorses slavery. It's kind of an interesting passage. Problem is, this couldn't be further from the truth, because you can't separate particular verses in Scripture from the entirety of the Bible, and when you look at Christian Christian history, you see that none of this is true, not when it's really lived out. So what we want to do today is walk through this passage, taking a look at how Paul is instructing the believers in Ephesus to live according to their submission to Christ. And this is the biggest principle today. If we're living in submission to Christ... It is amazing how well your life can operate. It really is true. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do. And all of you are like, what passage are we getting into today, right? Well, here we go. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to take a look at the bridge verse between these sections. We finished off in 21 last week, so we're going to start there and get into chapter 6. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, and then we'll get into chapter 6. I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word today. If you're new to Connection Point Church, two things. The reason we want you uh, in God's Word, you know, when I say I hope you have your Bible, is because we want you to have God's Word. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you today, there's one underneath a chair in front of you. Welcome to borrow that and read along with us. If you don't have one at home, take it home. Consider it a gift from the church. and, And we stand because these are God's words to us. And so I will say this as we get into this passage. More than anything... If it's what God's word said, wrestle with it. Uh, I told Shelly this week, you know, there's certain times as I work through messages, there's more wrestling that takes place. This was one of those weeks. Be okay to wrestle with God's word. In fact, I encourage it because when you do that, man, when the truth of it comes alive in your soul, it's like you just get to live so much better that way. So be okay to wrestle God's word. So we're going to be in verse 21. Here's what Paul writes, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
So I'm going to go ahead and say it here. I'll say it again. This is like the header. And now here's examples of how we can submit to one another out of our reverence to Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to, in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. These are the very words of God. You may be seated this morning. So we've been working through the New Testament book of Ephesians, defining what it means to be in Christ as followers of Jesus. And what we've discovered so far is that in Christ, tell you what, this list is getting long. We are made new as blessed saints who can endure affliction and who are appreciated, saved, reconciled, heard, gifted, forgiven, and adopted. What a wonderful inheritance we have in Christ. What a wonderful inheritance we have as children of God. And now from our passage this morning, we find that we're not done yet. Because in Christ, we are loved. We are loved. You are loved by God. You are loved by God, your creator. Probably the most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16, where, where John writes, For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We are loved by God. We are loved by God. If you you doubt that this morning, don't doubt it today. We are loved by God. And here's the thing, as I've shared throughout this series, is when we know who we are, then we know what to do. When you know who God has made you to be, then you know how to operate in this life. So when we know that we're loved by God, it should free us to display love toward others. Since we're loved, we can show love. So then what is it that keeps us from loving others sometimes? 
Simply put, it's our rebellious nature. It's our rebellious nature. It goes back a very long, long time ago. I mean, even just consider our country. Our very country was formed out of rebellion, right? Think about it. July 4th, 1776, during the American Revolution, 13 colonies signed the Declaration of Independence telling the kingdom of Great Britain they no longer consider themselves under British rule. Now, I'm not saying that we should have remained under British rule. I'm simply highlighting the fact that our country has rebellious roots. We do. And this isn't unique to our nation. This is simply the condition of man. It's part of the creation story in the Garden of Eden. We rejected God's rule. We declared our independence from him when we ate from the tree of good and evil. I don't know about you, but have you ever thought sometimes, if I were there, what would I have done? Can I help answer that question for you this morning? You get to eat from that tree every day. What do you decide to do? It's before all of us. So it's not just a one-time thing. It's an everyday thing. And what we see is that rebellion continues today. Every time we neglect to follow God's good will for our lives by engaging what scripture labels as works of the flesh. Here's some of those. You can look these up in Galatians. Sexual immorality, idolatry, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, and all kinds of other selfish and uncaring acts. So we decide every day, are we going to live in Adam or in Christ? Talked a lot about that. These are the acts of Adam. But then we also have the character of Christ that we can live in because of Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. So when we put on his character, instead of all of those things, what we instead have is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And so our passage this morning, it opens with submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That when we live by the Spirit, displaying the character of Christ, we can submit to one another in every type of relationship we have in life. This is what the following verses, they unpack then examples of these things, that we can submit to one another in family and work relationships. Husbands and wives, parents and children, bondservants and, and masters is what we have here. So let's first look at husbands and wives. If if we're living in submission to Christ, that's the root of it. Obeying his loving commands. Husbands will love their wives and wives will respect their husbands. That's what it says in verse 33. This is what Paul writes. He says, each man must love his wife as he loves himself and his wife must respect her husband. And one of the things I find interesting about this section of scripture is there's nine verses directed to husbands and three for the wives. I'll let you sit on that and you can come up with whatever conclusions you want. I'm just saying it's there. Here's what Paul writes. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands are to love their wives in a self-sacrificial manner, following the example of Christ who gave up his life for us. As I have loved, Jesus would tell us. Clearly, the biblical picture of a husband laying down his life for his wife, it's directly opposed to any kind of male tyranny or abuse of power that can occur in the world in which we live. This is why I said anyone who reads this passage, 
and thinks Christianity promotes male chauvinism, it's way off and they really don't have an understanding of the Bible. There's no way when you read these verses. Now that isn't to say, let me say this, religious leaders in the past or present that they haven't plucked these verses out and tried to use them for their own evil purposes. For sure that's happened, but that doesn't mean it's right. Scripture is scripture and how we follow it all depends on our submission to Christ. What we see is husbands are to love their wives well. And so what does that love look like? Paul writes about this in the the letter that we just read in 1 Corinthians for communion. In chapter 13, here's what it says. Love is patient and kind. Husbands, can I encourage you this morning? Fill your name in here. Zach is patient and kind. Like, can you fill your name in? Would that be true? We know it's true of Jesus. Jesus is patient and kind. How many know that's true? Yeah, so we're just filling in our names here to say this is what it looks like. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. That is such a great picture of what it looks like husbands to love our wives well. In our setting, it's, it's not real likely. Shelly and I talked a good bit about this message this week and thinking about it. It's not real likely husbands are going to have to physically die for their wives in the setting in which we live. But laying down your life could mean working a steady job, helping to provide for the family, being a good co-parent, helping with laundry, cleaning up the kitchen, scrubbing some toilets, cooking some meals, asking how your wife's day was. Could look a lot like those things. So let me tell you, I'm good at cleaning toilets. I've got picture proof of it somewhere. I've shared that here at some point. (laughs) I was scrubbing toilets one Saturday and I said, you know what? This is what pastors do on Saturdays. I think I got more likes from that picture than any other picture I've posted in my life. (laughs) What do we know? Husbands, our love of our wives should flow out of our submission to Christ. That's the source. And wives, it's vital. It's vital you respect your husbands. It says in verse 22, it's important that wives submit to their husbands. Paul goes on to explain, for a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. So for us to understand this husband-wife relationship, it's important we understand Jesus' relationship with the church. Everything's couched in that. And I love how Richard Rohr, he writes about this relationship in his book, Adam's Return. Listen to this. This is one of my favorite paragraphs in the book. He writes, Jesus is king. And he is that strong and stable energy that holds all things together, removing chaos, fear, and doubt. When Jesus enters the room, people are healed, reconciled, and their devils flee. How many are glad for that, Jesus? But here's what I like what Richard Ward links here, because it's actually all about a book about male initiation. And here's what he says, and likewise, when fathers and husbands are living up to their God-given potential, when daddy is home, the house is safe and secure psychologically and physically. Isn't that a good dad? That's the power of a good father and our good king. Now, let me say this. This is true whether you're 6'4 and 250 pounds or 5'6 and 120. Physical stature doesn't matter. It's about goodness and godliness and submission to King Jesus. 
That's what it's absolutely about. A couple of things regarding male headship in a home. This in no way means men and women are not equal. Doesn't mean that at all. I have covered this at great length in lots of messages here at Connection Point. The latest one was Jesus and women. I think it was last May I shared that. So let me say this. If this is your first message as we're covering these topics, man, please go back and listen to that. Because you've got to look at the whole of scripture to really understand what Paul's writing about here, along with everything else. It's so important. Uh, Shelly and I, th- uh, I was thinking about examples here. Shelly and I are both ordained ministers with the Assemblies of God. We spent a lot of time, Shelly was digging into commentaries with me this week on, the, on these passages. Uh, that women have served at all levels of leadership here at Connection Point Church. When we arrived, Deanne Dalton was uh, one of the deacons here. So as it relates to men and women in the church, we are absolutely both made in the image of God, equal and partners in Christ. Does that make sense? But at the same time, as we look at this passage, there is something unique that happens in a marriage relationship. There really is. Uh, Another thing, as it relates to male headship in the home, it does not mean the husband is the source of life for his wife. There is one source for life. Jesus is. That's it. Jesus is our source. Another thing, male headship's not about control. No individual should ever seek to control another. It's sin. Male headship in the home does not mean women are to submit to all men. This is important. Marriage relationship is unique in the way it displays the image of God to the world, which is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit working in perfect submission with one another. That's a unique relationship. I talked about this in in the message on Jesus and marriage. So as I'm sharing this message today, I would encourage you, if you've not heard those two, go back and listen to that to round out what all of this really means together. It's really good. And lastly, male headship is all about displaying the self-sacrificing love we've already talked about. That's what it is. That's what it is. And the source of all of this, the way that husbands and wives interact with one another, is as God has loved us, so it's important husbands love their wives, wives respect their husbands, both out of submission to Christ. That's what's happening here. And let me say this too. Singles, this principle applies to you as well. It's for you as well. Single men, are you currently loving your potential future wife by how you conduct yourself spiritually, financially, emotionally, mentally, and sexually? Are you doing that? Are you growing in love of Jesus and conducting yourself in such a way that when you do meet your wife, she'll know you loved her ever before you met her? Single ladies, is your current life a demonstration of a love of Jesus and respect for your future spouse? When you meet your husband one day, Will he think the life you lived showed how much you love Jesus and him? So whether married or single, we are, here's the whole point. We are to submit to the Lordship of Jesus in our lives. And if we do that, it works out in other relationships too. But another important relationship where we need to display this kind of loving relationship flowing out of our submission to Christ is in regards to parents and children. We find love is expressed in this relationship with children obeying their parents and parents not provoking their children toward anger. Uh, One of the principles for Shelly and I is the value of helping our kids learn the blessing of loving obedience toward us. And parents, here's why this matters. Because what I have found is if your children can't learn to lovingly obey some of your expectations, they'll never obey the most important expectations. They'll miss it. They'll miss it. It's so important that they value obedience to King Jesus, and that starts in the home. We know if our kids can't obey us, it's not likely they'll learn to obey Jesus, which sets up 
our kids for terrible consequences in this life and horrendous ones for all of eternity. So important. But not only do children need to learn loving obedience to their parents' expectations, but parents need to love their children by admitting when they're wrong. Parents, this is so important. I cannot tell you how many times, too many to count, I have to go back and apologize to Nate, Haley, and Lucas for a decision I've made, a reaction I've had, and what I want to do is close the distance on those apologies every time. Like, don't wait a day. Like, you know what? I'm sorry. It's so important. It's such a great way to model for your children what it looks like to be an emotionally and spiritually mature adult. It does. It models for them really wonderful things. What would be wrong? So let me say this. It's not that you're not going to fall short. Parents, you're going to fall short. Hey, in case you haven't heard it today, parents, we all fall short. We do. So it's not that we're not going to fall short. It's just important that when we fall short, we admit it. We talk about it. It's a good thing. But I also want to be clear here, parents. It's not to say your kids won't get mad at you when you confront their selfish and rebellious natures. They're not going to say, woo, thanks, mom and dad. If you get that reaction, I'd like to adopt your kid. That doesn't happen. You can expect some fun reactions when you, like God, come against those things in their lives that you know is going to cause them harm. It's okay. But just do it in a way that shows that you're coming at it because you love them, not because you're against them. And the last example we have from our passage this morning, it relates to bond servants and masters. This is a fun one. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. It's estimated that slaves, which is the, the literal translation for bond servant, it composed one third of a population like Ephesus. Lots of bond servants in those cities. They were an important part of the family. So Paul's instructions for bond servants, it was actually a natural part of dealing with family relationships, which is what this section of scripture is all about. So Paul writes about this knowing that in the Ephesian congregation where this letter is being read, sits husbands and wives, parents and children, bond servants and masters. That's the congregation. That letter's being read and Paul's giving instructions there. In Roman culture, we know that bond servants had limited rights and they were subject to exploitation and abuse. But I want to be clear here. In no way does Paul condone the existing system of servitude, but instead he simply provides instructions to believing masters and bond servants regarding their relationship to each other in the Lord and how this should be lived out in the bounds of their social and legal structure of the day. So Paul's doing. So give me, give, I'm going to give you a modern day example. If I were to write believers in China today, I would write encouraging them to apply scripture to their lives. And I would do so in the context of their communist setting without any way saying, I agree with the communist setting that you're living in. That's just what we do. This is what we did in the Middle East. We lived in the Middle East and no way did we condone Sharia law in Islamic settings. But we were constantly looking at how the believers in Christ live according to scripture, even in a setting I don't agree with. Does this make sense? This is where, how Paul's writing. So Paul is speaking about social structures. He's doing that, but he doesn't mean he condones them. And here's how I know that he doesn't. Take a look at uh, Timothy. He's writing a mentee of his. Here's what he says. For the law was not intended for people who do what is right. 
It is for people who are lawless, rebellious, ungodly, sinful. So Paul's not like speaking kindly to this group of people. And here's what he says that these type of people, what kind of things that they do. They are sexually immoral. They practice homosexuality. They're slave traders, liars, promise breakers, and who do anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news entrusted to me by our blessed God. So Paul very clearly speaks against the slave trade here. In another letter, Paul writes a believer named Philemon. At some point, Onesimus, one of Philemon's bondservants, he flees to Rome, apparently having stolen something from Philemon. And I love the sovereignty of God here. Rome was a big city. And who does this guy run into? Paul. If that's not God, like run from God. Good luck. God's going to get you. And that's a good thing, by the way. (laughs) So he runs into Paul, becomes a follower of Jesus And because of his fugitive status, his severed relationship and wrongdoing against his master, Paul knows this needs to be addressed and made right. So Paul writes Philemon. So Paul knew Philemon because while he's in Ephesus, he's training believers. Philemon becomes a believer. He's got a church meeting in his home and he encourages Philemon. He says, I appreciate all that Onesimus has done and who he is. And here's my encouragement. Receive him back, not just as a bondservant, but as a beloved brother. That's what it says. So the result of this kind of Christian ethic, the way that believers live their lives, what happens? This taking root in the Roman world is what eventually gets rid of this kind of servitude in antiquity. It's like abolished. That's what Christianity does. So to be clear, I want to be clear here, verses like these that we read in our passage this morning, they could have been used in the past to condone slavery, but it's crazy. Evil people do all kinds of evil things for their own purposes, right? That doesn't mean God's word isn't true and right. It is. So now what about application for these verses today? And this isn't a perfect correlation, but what about the relationship between employers and employees? Because ultimately these instructions that we have, the principle is, is it's those in authority and under authority. And it's for those who are in some kind of contractual agreement. And so basically what this is, is you agree to do this work and I agree to pay you and take care of you in this way. It's, it's a very similar situation. Paul's instructions are then this, work with enthusiasm. Doesn't even just say work. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than men. When you show up to work tomorrow morning, when you show up to work this afternoon, whenever you're going to go there, Paul says, work with such enthusiasm. People are like, that guy's crazy. And you're like, I am crazy for Jesus. I'm working for him. I'm not working for my boss today. I'm working for him. No matter what you do, if you do your work, you do it unto the Lord. It's all for him. We're to work hard and honestly for Jesus. Not just when others are looking, but at all times, because Jesus is always looking. And for employers, it's about treating employees well, taking care of them. All of this, the way that we love our families and those that we work with, it flows out of our relationship and submission to King Jesus. That's the whole point this morning. Because God has loved us, we get to love others. So how are you doing loving your spouse? Husbands, in what ways are you showing love towards your wife? Wives, how are you displaying respect towards your husband? Children, teens, how are you doing meeting your parents' expectations? Parents, are you loving your children? 
Admitting your mistakes, helping them see what it looks like to live as an emotionally mature follower of Jesus. As you work, are you working for Jesus? You working for him? Employers, do you take care of your employees like they are your own sons and daughters? How are you doing there? In Christ, we are loved. So let's walk in that love and, and respect others in every relationship that we have. And the other thing we find from our passage this morning is that in Christ, as we love well, we're rewarded. We're rewarded. When we love our spouses well, we oftentimes are rewarded with peaceful homes. When children learn to obey their parents, they avoid the many pitfalls avoided us in life. I would say this, parents, if you don't help your toddlers learn to overcome their naturally selfish and rebellious ways, you can expect their teen years to be incredibly problematic. And if you don't help them figure it out in their teen years, their young adult years could be very, very disheartening. Far better to live in the rewards of living according to God's good word than to face the consequences of avoiding it. And what about the workplace? When believers work as unto the Lord, they become the best employees an organization could ever hope for. We should be the best employees of any workplace that we're in. We should be. Because we're not working for whoever our boss is, we're working for King Jesus. Our passage tells us the Lord will reward each one of us for the good that we do. So what are some of the rewards that we can expect? Sometimes we're rewarded with greater opportunities and responsibilities in the kingdom of God. He opens up doors for different things. And this, what does it do? It helps us fulfill our God-given purpose and influence that God has for us. Another thing he does, sometimes we get to see the impact we've had on other people's lives. Which, if you've experienced that, man, there's a deep inner joy that goes with that. Another reward is deep and meaningful relationships with others. And for all believers, our greatest reward is personally knowing God and one day getting to see Jesus face to face. That's the best reward of them all. Let us never forget, we are eternal. We are forever. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to have rewards, I prefer forever than just right now. Scripture says it this way, our life is a little while. A little while. It might not feel like that right now. It doesn't feel like a little while. But a million years from now, you're going to look back and say, that was a little while. That was a little while. So what we must keep in mind as it relates to rewards is they are ultimately given to us for eternity. Much more than we'll experience in this present life. Is it great to have greater kingdom impact in our lives? Sure. Is it nice to see the impact our lives have on others? Yeah. Is it wonderful to enjoy deep, meaningful relationships in the kingdom? Absolutely. But nothing compares to the rewards a life well lived in Jesus' name it brings for all of eternity. Nothing compares to that. It's the difference of desiring rewards for today or with Jesus for all time. For those who live a life devoted to Jesus and others, making disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey the commands of Christ, they are promised to hear those fateful words from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Best thing we could ever hear. With Jesus, we get a forever return on our investment of our lives. Forever return. I think that's a pretty good ROI. Return on investment, right? A forever return. Jesus sees and knows and he rewards all. So let's live for him in every relationship we have.
It's the encouragement today. So what's our takeaway? In Christ, we are loved and we are rewarded. That's who we are. And so today as we close, we get to declare in Christ, I'm made new as a blessed saint who can endure affliction, who's appreciated, saved, reconciled, heard, gifted, forgiven, adopted, loved, and rewarded. What a wonderful list. In Christ, all of these wonderful things. So let's stand. We'll go to the next slide, see who's memorized it. <laughs> now nah, I'm just kidding. We won't do that. All right, so together, let's declare who we are in Christ. Are you ready? Yes. Are you ready? Yes. Who are you? And we're not done yet. What a wonderful list. Maybe even think about which one of those is your favorite this week. There's a lot there. May we always remember who we are in Christ. While you're standing, I want to ask, are you here today? But you realize you're not living according to that identity because you've never made a decision to follow Jesus. But today you would say, I want to live according to that list. That list, that's powerful. Today you can make that decision and follow Jesus for a lifetime. And that's why we come together in community. It says in scripture, we encourage one another toward love and good works. Can I say, we encourage one another to live up to our identity in Christ. That's what we're doing. So you're not alone in that journey with Jesus. We're never meant to have been alone. I'd shared before that when Jesus said, follow me, it was an invitation to be in relationship with him in relationship with others that he'd already called. So they were head bowed in the room this morning. Who here today would say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to live according to that identity. Not of my own creation, but of God's creation. Just raise your hand and let me pray with you before we go. Who here today would say, that's me? Over here on the right, anybody else? back over here, anybody else that would say, that's me, I want to live up to that God-given identity. Jesus, we just thank you that you came, you died, and you rose again. You gave us your spirit to live according to this identity that, that we so declared this morning, that we can be reconciled with you and others, that we are blessed because you created us that we are saints, we're not sinners, but people that have been covered by the blood of the Lamb, that we are forgiven, we are loved, we are rewarded, we're made new. So Jesus, I pray that we live new, live in that newness of life that you came to bring. Help us do it this afternoon, help us do it tomorrow and all week long. Jesus, I pray for those uh, that raised their hand this morning. I pray, Lord Jesus, that they would commit themselves to you, not just in this moment, but forever. Eternity starts now. We just simply pass from this life into the next, where we get to see you face to face. And so, God, I just pray that you help us to live like you. We thank you that we can do that. God, as we close in song this morning, may we 
just recommit ourselves to our God-given identities as we took communion today and committed ourselves to it. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we commit ourselves anew today to who you've created and designed us to be. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.